0: Hey everyone, Mikkel here. Okay, before we jump into today's episode, I wanna remind you that if you go to expatmoneyshow.com, you're gonna be able to download our special report. It's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. It has been a project of mine I have been working on for maybe four years now, and I constantly update this with the newest and best strategies. Now, it's really different than a lot of other special reports or books out there because this one is really short and it is short on purpose. What I want to do is kind of highlight to you the best of the best strategies that are out there in the world and then where you can go for additional information or how you can get involved in these things. So instead of writing a 500 page special report on this, which probably chances are no one is going to read it. This is really highly condensed information. I've actually put it in an infographic. It's an infographic special report. Uh, It has helped thousands upon thousands of people really get a grasp of being an expat and what type of things are out there to protect your assets, professionals that you should be working with, investments, real estate, these types of things. So, it's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. You can pick it up at expatmoneyshow.com. You'll see it, it's on the very first page at the very top. All you need to do is put in your name and email address. You're going to get a chance to actually join my private email list, EMS Pulse. And there's just so much great things that are shared on there. It's completely free. There's no funnel. There's no trick to this. There's no credit card needed, anything like that. It's just a good resource for you, my listener, who I love and adore. And I want to do right by you guys. So go to expatmoneyshow.com. Pick this up. Let me know what you think. I'll talk to you soon. Enjoy today's episode. Hey, everyone. Okay, we are going to be doing part two of my sailing mini-series. This is an awesome conversation with Brady Troutman. Oh, my God. Like, I think that I've done a lot of crazy, cool, interesting, wild stuff in my life. Brady has, like, done a lot. Like, like I, he makes me envious. He makes me go, wow, I've not done anything. This is an amazing individual. His YouTube channel has something like 670,000 subscribers, and they've documented years of travel. So I'm not going to spoil the surprise because I do want you to listen to this episode, but this is part two in our mini-series on sailing. So if you haven't heard part one, then you might want to go back and check out episode 120 with Nick and Teresa. It is a really, really good interview, and I think you're going to find it really interesting. Okay, enjoy today's show, and make sure you also check us next week for episode 122 with Jim and Judy Brown. That's going to be an awesome one, too. Okay, let's jump in. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikhail Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is an entrepreneur, filmmaker, and the co-founder of the YouTube channel SV Delos. Originally from Florida, he studied environmental engineering before making the transition to full-time sailing. His skills in marketing, video editing, and qualifications as a dive master, dive instructor, and rescue diver have played a huge part in keeping Delos in the top echelons of the YouTube sailing channels, all the while inspiring others to follow their dreams. Please welcome to the show, Brady Troutman. Brady, how are you? I'm good, man. How are you today? Doing really well. I'm really excited for today's conversation. I've checked out your YouTube channel. Man, you have done some incredible stuff in your life. So, I guess straight off the bat, like, how did you get into sailing? How did you decide that this is what you wanted to do? And man, what's your backstory?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show, man. It's always good to, to talk to people like this and have conversations and kind of spread the word about sailing and travel in general. So it's really cool to be here and chat about it. Um, so how I got into sailing, it was kind of like a snowball effect of the universe just kind of throwing things at me. It was never a, <laughs> it was never a decision that I was like, you know, from the time I was three, I meet a lot of people that knew what they wanted to do. And it was definitely not me at all. Uh, i didn't grow up sailing our parents uh, me and my brother the one who i started the youtube channel with um like we didn't grow up sailing our parents didn't didn't grow up sailing our dad gets seasick so it's definitely not <laughs> something that's in our blood um later on in life when i was going to university going to college i um got into scuba diving and i became a dive instructor down in the Florida Keys. Um, and I was working for the Boy Scouts of America. So basically, they didn't pay you very much, but they would pay you in experiences and certifications. So they put me all the way up through my dive instructor, and they were able to give me my captain's license to operate like the little dive boats and take the, the 12, 13 year old kids out diving. And that's kind of when I really, really fell in love with the ocean and, and especially diving. And I don't know, I just always saw it as like, the biggest kind of highway in the world, like the the best way to go and travel and and see the planet. And at the same time, my older brother Brian was um, working in Seattle, and he got into sailing. He started off with like a 22 foot Catalina, and he's 10 years older than me. So at the time, I was 20, and he was 30. Like you know, he'd been working for his company for 10 years or whatever, and was ready to get the hell out. And um, him and his partner found a boat. It was a 53-foot Amel Super Maramu, so like a big step up from the boat that they learned on. And they decided to sell everything and and sail down the coast to Mexico. And they gave me a call and was like, hey, dude, you want to come and help us cross from Mexico to French Polynesia? And, yeah, I literally took out all my student loans I could, signed up for all the classes, took out the student loans, then dropped all the classes and took the money and left. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's so, one way to do it. Okay. So, so l- let's track the journey a little bit, I guess, because I mean, I, I, there's so many things I want to talk to you about, but let, let's start with the journey. Okay. So you, the first thing you did was sail to the Pacific, sail across the Pacific.
1: That's yeah, man, that kind was, of that like our a, first big passage.
0: Okay. So correct me if I'm I'm wrong or not, but I mean, that's kind of like a big step, isn't it? Like, don't usually people putter around in like, <laughs> like calm waters, maybe in the Caribbean for a couple of years or something first. Yeah,
1: it is. I mean, we, my brother and and his partner had sailed up in Seattle for about a year, just like kind of around the area, leaving for a day or two and then coming back to the marina. But for me specifically, down in the Keys, I did like some day sailing trips, one or two overnight trips, but nothing nothing big. So yeah, for all of us, this was a very, very big step. And I think back, I mean, it was 2010 when we did this. So like Instagram wasn't around, like you didn't really rely on the internet as much for things. Whereas now I think you do so much research, you kind of scare yourself away from making a trip like that without knowing what the hell you're doing. But back then it was just like, oh yeah, the wind blows in that direction. And kind of, we just get enough food and water and just go and eventually we'll, we'll hit Tahiti or something. That was kind of The thought process behind
0: it. Totally understand. Because I mean, I hitchhiked through Central and South America for 18 months in 2002, 2003, something like, 2003, 2004, I think it was. And I mean, we had no internet. There was no research. There was no, it was like, I'm going south that's it. I got a big yeah. red backpack. I'm going south. I got a thumb. I'm going to put that out and I'm just going to go south. That was about you, as you far as I planned.
1: You relied on people that had the experience before you or you, exactly. know, you meet people on thing. the road
0: and stuff like that. Maybe you guys, I don't know. Do you meet other people on the open
1: ocean? Do you meet people in port or something and get
0: advice from them or how does that work?
1: Definitely. I mean, still some of the, some of the friends that we met in Mexico for that crossing in 2010, we're still friends with like 10 years later. Wow. And like some of them them gone on to make, make films and, and create businesses. And a lot of them are still sailing with their families and yeah, it's really cool.
0: So that's an interesting point. You met these people 10 years ago and they're still continuing on sailing. So this is not like a phase or a fad. People do it for six months and then they get bored of it or something and then they go do something else.
1: Yeah. Some people, I mean, I think we, we met a lot of people that, that had like an 18th month goal where they're like, okay, I, I, Taking a sabbatical from work has saved up enough money. I'm going to rent the house out, buy the boat, sail around the world for 18 months, two years, whatever, and then come back, sell the boat, and go back to normal life. Um, so there, are, there is a lot of people that do that as well. And we met them along the way. They were always going really fast past us. And they're like, oh, I wish we could stay, but we have to go. So we always stayed in the place for a couple months and they would stay for a week or two. But then, yeah, there's the other side of people that. The family that I'm talking about, Totem, they, they raised three children on board and one of the kids has gone off to college and the other two girls live on board still. And they're they're down in Mexico again. They've completed completed their circumnavigation. They're getting ready to cross the Pacific again. Wow.
0: So let's yeah. talk about the journey across the Pacific. How long does something like that take? Or, Or maybe a better question is how long did it take
1: you guys to do? So it took us, we were at sea for, I think it was 19 days on that trip. So it was it was a solid passage. I mean, it's one of the biggest passages you can do in the world, being the furthest from land as possible. Um, and we left Puerto Vallarta in Mexico, um, March or early April of 2010. And yeah, made it to the Marquesas, which is, I think the total, total distance is about 3,200 miles. I could be saying that wrong. It's been a while since I've looked at yeah, the distance, sure. but Yeah, man. And then you just, you basically are, you're in the trade winds. There's a reason why Jimmy Buffett and all these guys wrote songs about sailing in the South Pacific. It's just like beautiful, calm conditions all the time, constant winds. And, and um, that passage was, was definitely transformative for me because I took a break from college to do this. And I was planning on going back three months later. And during that passage, something just kind of clicked where I was like, this is kind of what I need to do. And this is where I'm supposed to be and um you know the first 3 days you're like reading and, and listening to audiobooks or watching movies that you downloaded on the hard drive and then you get super bored and you stare at the ocean for 4 or 5 hours at a time <laughs> and then all of a sudden like all that shit just goes away and you're like days just like pass by like this and before you know it, you're like holy shit we've been out here 2 weeks and it just doesn't matter like the whole world just melts away and the only thing you're worried about is catching fish and eating and getting water see i would like it. that
0: my days start at about 7.30 in the morning. I'm, I basically wake up, reach over, grab my phone, and start working immediately. And I finish at around 12.30 at night. And I mean, it seems oh, like man. six, six and a half days a week is like this. I mean, maybe I'll take a half a day on Sunday or something, the mornings on Sunday and play with my kid. But I mean, I've just gotten so caught up in work stuff and building the business. I mean... Just staring at the ocean for five hours actually sounds like a treat to me. Like, I think that would do me very well for my mental health. We call it sea-hab. Sea-hab? What is sea-hab? Explain.
1: It's like rehab, but Uh, for the sea. (laughs) And it's not necessarily for alcohol or joy. It's just kind of like for mental well-being. It kind of, you go on a long passage and you just kind of get back in touch with everything that's you kind of forget when you're working 15 hour days. Yeah, that sounds... (laughs) <laughs> getting, like, are you, are you nostalgic. happy what you're doing? Are you happy working that much?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm building my business. I'm building my own brand and everything like that. Yeah. So, And I'm my own boss. So I do this to myself. But I have a family and, you know, I remember when I met my wife, one of the things that she told me that she loves about me is I'm so responsible. I'm such a good father and I put in so much time and effort and I put my family first all these times. So I always try to remember, like, there's lots of times I'm like, I'm so tired. I don't want to do this. I mean, I want to sit around and read a book or something, but I'm like, no, I got responsibilities. I got followers. I've got clients. I've got people who need stuff done, and people are counting on me. So, therefore, I'm going to suck it up. That's my job, and I'm going to do it.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's
0: exactly like, um, you know, I'm not a chauvinist or anything like that, but I do think that it's a man's responsibility to provide for his family. And I want to make sure that my wife and my child can always count on me. That is really, really important to me. But anyways, I want to get back to the South Pacific. So you sailed across the ocean. What were the countries you hit in the South Pacific?
1: Mm -hmm. So the first place we came into was, um, it's called French Polynesia, which is kind of uh, the society islands, which is where Tahiti is. And and people know that very well, Bora Bora. Um, There's also a group of islands called the Tuamotus, which are like very small atolls with like super crystal clear blue water on the inside and then it drops on the outsides and then the Marquesas Islands are are the furthest east of the French Polynesia group and um those are like straight out of Jurassic Park just like huge volcanic peaks a lot like Hawaii uh super untouched and and um very like Polynesian culture it's really special to like leave Mexico be at sea for three weeks and show up and it's like straight-up Polynesian culture like you've never seen before. So that's kind of the, the furthest east of the South Pacific. And then as you work your way west, um, the next stop was Tonga, uh, Nui, the Cook Islands, and then Fiji. And by this point, when we got to Fiji, we were we were gone from Mexico for about six or seven months. And the cyclone season was starting. So the biggest thing about sailing is around the world like that is, it's always based on the seasons. Like the weather controls everything, where you go, what time you go, where you anchor. So when the cyclone season starts to kick in in the South Pacific, you wanna be way out of the way down in New Zealand, just as if you don't wanna be in the Caribbean during hurricane season, you wanna be Mm -hmm. out of the way.
0: So is that like a migration of boats? Like, do you see the same people at the yacht club in different countries as time goes by because everyone kind of follows the same rough route or, or do you see people and then never see them again? And it's always new people.
1: You know, it's, it's both, like I said, some people are moving at a faster pace so people will blast past you, but you, you often find these groups of boats and like we call them buddy boating or whatever, but there's these little communities that join together and you just become friends and it happens a lot with kid boats. So like if there's two families on separate boats and they have kids of similar ages. They'll just stay together for like months or years and just sail to the same islands and have the kids learn together and play together. And when
0: you say together, do you mean like you can still see the other boat while you're sailing or it's like I'll meet you in Tahiti in 2 weeks and yeah, we'll catch both, up then? Both really both, okay. Yeah, cool. I mean
1: I think when people first start out and they and they want a buddy boat, they want to be within eyesight range um just for safety's sake and and but once you start sailing you're like we're going to leave tonight. Okay. We'll leave tomorrow. We'll see you in Tahiti or we'll see you in a week in Fiji or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, there's, there's definitely a huge migration of boats every year from Mexico to, um, you know, either New Zealand or Australia, and they're all doing the same thing. It's called the coconut run. You, you go across, you go across South Pacific or the barefoot run, you know, cause you don't have wear shoes yeah. <laughs> and you end up, you end up nine months later in New Zealand and, and, uh, yeah, escaping the cyclones. Amazing.
0: So did you do much diving when you were in the South Pacific? I lived in the South Pacific for four years and just dove all through Tonga and Vanuatu and Fiji and
1: Australia and New Zealand and all over the place there. And it was spectacular. Yeah, that was a huge thing for me because I was a dive instructor in the Keys before this trip. And like, I remember, I mean, the, the dive shop next to us and the keys, I would go through the magazines and I'd see like people diving in Bora Bora and all this. And it was like, Holy shit. Like I have a chance to go to the places I've been looking at magazines. So it was huge. Yeah. We, we put a compressor on Delos. So we could fill you had your own tanks. compressor on the boat. Yeah. We had oh six dive tanks and our own compressor. I was already we, jealous of you Brady. Now I'm like super. <laughs> 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 yeah, man, we just, we would dive. I mean, we, was our thing is like you know you could some people travel the world by sailboat and they surf or or they they go on hikes or whatever they're foodies and they want to just experience the best of the food culture our thing was was scuba diving for sure we would go so you just had you had all
0: your own gear you had your own tanks you had your own compressors so you were like self-sufficient
1: for diving yeah fully self-sufficient Yeah, solar panels
0: everything just ready to go that's amazing because all of my dive trips like i've dove certainly not as much as you have, but I've dove, you know, 130, 140 times in 15, 20 different countries. But I go on dive holidays. I fly to a country, I dive my heart out for seven days straight, take a couple days chilling out and then fly back and would go to work or something like that. That'd be my vacation. But yeah, the dream is to be able to dive anytime. So let me ask you, when you do have that option of diving anytime, do you take advantage of it or does it kind of get like, Uh, I don't feel like it. It's, I've done this before. I've seen it before.
1: Yeah, it it does get, I mean, it does get like that a while. Like you do get a little bit jaded. Um, I don't know, even after 10 years, we were still super in love with diving just as much as when we started and for different reasons, especially when you get into underwater photography and videography, you'll be like, oh, this dive, I'm going to focus on the smallest things possible. And then, you know, maybe you'll spend two days going out of your way because you heard there's a chance of seeing a whale shark or manta raised somewhere. So you kind of have these goals that kind of keep it very fulfilling. Um, one thing that's really special about diving so much is you don't have to do long dives. So like, you know, when you're on when you're on vacation and sometimes when we go with companies, they're like, okay, this dive's gonna be an hour and 15 minutes long. And you're like, what the fuck? (laughs) Like or you know, or like when we dive off off Delos, you know, sometimes we do 20, 30 minute dives because it just doesn't matter. Like if there's nothing there, we get bored or it gets cold, you just get out because you can you can do it again at any point.
0: Yeah, because so you're not doing like, okay, you great. got two tanks for the day and you want to get every last second out of those
1: two tanks and no. then that's it. I mean. No, luckily, luckily we didn't, yeah, we didn't really dive like that. So crazy. Very grateful.
0: So Cyclone Susan is coming in and you're leaving the South Pacific. I, I'm, I want to do the around the world. Like what happened next? Where'd you go next?
1: Well, I was supposed to fly back and finish college at that point, and um, I didn't. I just decided to, to. I called my dad, who had my car, and I told him to sell it or take it over. And I was just like, "This is what I want to do." And I think college for me was all about figuring out what I didn't want to do and kind of just, you know, sticking to the norm of like, "Well, I'm supposed to get a degree. I'm supposed to do this. I kind of enjoy this, but nothing ever felt right until I was actually sailing and traveling." And that's when I, I feel like I could invest 100% of my time and my energy and, and my student loans into what I actually wanted to learn. And that was just about the world, basically, and see where it took me. Um, but it only lasted so long. So when we got to New Zealand, we were, we were dead broke. Like we had no money left in savings. Uh, the boat wasn't paid off, it was mortgaged just like a house. So we had a boat payment. So we would often look for jobs and we did random work. Uh, my brother worked, he, he's an electrical engineer. That's what he majored in. So he helped out some bigger yachts with electrical systems on the boats. Um, I got day work like cleaning boats and, and I ended up managing a Mexican restaurant in New Zealand called Mexicali Fresh. And, and um, <laughs> like So was this Mexican all image. under
0: the table type of work
1: or did you guys end no. up getting a visa? Or Actually, the, the day work stuff was cash cash work under the table, but because I was under thirty, uh, New Zealand and Australia at that time, and they may still have it, had um, an under thirty travelers visa where you could get a year a year working visa if you were under thirty years old. So that's what I got, and I I was legally yeah legally working and being taxed. And I did the same
0: ones. I did yeah. one year in New Zealand, and then I did a year in Australia, and then I did a bridging visa, and then I got a sponsorship, and I did a four five seven skilled migrant worker, and then I was so I was in Australia for three years. And those are great oh, cool. programs. I mean, I I think they still do them. I hope so. I'm certainly more than 30 years old now. But I, I hope they still do them. They're really good opportunities for, for people in their 20s.
1: They're so great. I met so many incredible people that, yeah, they just traveled to New Zealand and be like, I'm going to work for a year before, in between going from high school to college. And I feel like culturally, a lot of other places in the world do that a lot better than America does. Like the gap year and stuff. And, and I was like, holy shit, like this exists? Why, why Why isn't this like this back home? Right after high school, you go straight to college and you better figure out what you want to do. Yeah.
0: And it's not even talked about in the school. It's not even like presented as an option to take a gap year or to go out there and see the world. I mean, Whereas in these countries, it's, kind of it's weird. almost
1: required. Yeah. It's like, you have a year, go. So yeah, it was really special and it made us, we were able to save enough money. I mean, we didn't save that much, but we were able to save enough um, to sail out of New Zealand. We, we, were, we lived in New Zealand for about, about eight or nine months and then yeah we took a break we know we were at the, the boat was at the dock so we're not constantly moving it's kind of like an apartment at that point a small apartment and then we we left again and we set sail for um dg again and then we went to the solomon islands uh, vanuatu vanuatu first and then the solomon islands
0: did you dive the uss president coolidge
1: i, I did yeah we so did the coolidge good. for like a week straight
0: yeah we do. that thing is <laughs> unbelievable i just yeah. love, I love the wreck diving yeah i dove the yeah. wreck i was there i think i was there about 10 days and dove two three times a day for seven days straight i must have done 20 dives on that one one wreck and just never got bored did you end it. up
1: did you end up doing the gauntlet where they like take you into the, the stern because you know it's sitting on, yeah because on it's, it's on stern. its side and it's like yeah. on an angle yeah like by the by the end this our dive guide and i'll never do this again it's it's even embarrassing to say that we did this because it's super dangerous but he took us down to the, the sand which was at 221 feet
0: yeah just 60 on air. 63 meters yeah it's crazy
1: yeah, we got 70 yeah was, and and we touched sand so narked like just completely out of it and it was like follow me through the ship and we did the entire ship out and i was like you we know, go halfway running out of air and I, oh, it was just like one of those situations you were like that was So stupid. I'm glad I did it, but I'm never going that deep again. Yeah, exactly. Not
0: encouraging others to do it. No, no, I didn't do do that that. one. Did a ton of dives on it. Didn't make it quite down to the deepest part, but, um, yeah, that was a good dive. That was good. Yeah. So, okay. I'm I'm curious. I mean, so up until this point, you've been working and saving and then sailing, working, sailing, saving, that type of thing. So what was the, the transition to, you know, I want to do this for a living. I want to, you know, go into YouTuber. I want to be a, I don't know, digital nomad. I don't even know when that name kicked in or became popular. Um, Let's talk about that a little bit. We will just take a quick break. In a lot of the circles that I run in, the content creators are being deplatformed. People are being banned on Twitter, censored on Facebook, and YouTube channels are being demonetized. Basically, cutting off people's ability to reach their audience and share their message with the world. And it has gotten even worse than that. Entire companies are under siege. Servers are being shut down, and their products are being taken off of the App Store and Google Play. There is no question about it. There are some scary things going on right now. I want to make sure that I can continue to provide for you the best news and information from the offshore space every single week. That's why I want you to pause this episode right now and visit expatmoneyshow.com forward slash protection to sign up for EMS Pulse, my weekly newsletter. In it, you will find personal insights from my travels and over 21 years of experience in the international space. We will be looking at foreign businesses, generating income online, asset protection, corporate structures new visas for digital nomads and a whole lot more so i hope you will take me up on this opportunity and sign up for my newsletter to make sure that you can continue to receive the best from the offshore space now directly to your inbox go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash protection okay let's jump back into the episode
1: For sure. So when we first left, we were, we were writing blogs and taking pictures just to share stories with family and friends. And because, I mean, back then there wasn't many young people doing what we were doing. Like every boat we saw was, you know, a retired couple or a family that was, you know, either 40s or 50s and, and, and had just had kids. So, but like a group of younger 30, 20 year olds, and there was always, you know, four or five of us on the boat, just friends or whoever we met along the way, backpackers that would join us. It was a really unique, circumstance and even our blog was getting quite a bit of like not a not a huge following but people were reading it besides our parents you know and that's kind of a a big big deal back then and um but still our, our our family and friends were still like i don't get it like what the hell are you guys doing out there like you're living on a boat you're traveling from place to place and the pictures and the stories are cool but we just don't understand it so then we bought a small camcorder and we just started filming Daily life, small stuff. And we put it on YouTube because that's just what it was pretty new in, in, the, in the world. And, and we were like, oh, here's a link and sent it to our family and friends so they could watch what we were doing instead of just pictures and blogs. And then other people just started watching and it just started kind of growing organically. And, and for the first year, I mean, we just did it completely for fun, didn't even didn't even cross our minds that it was it could turn into a business or anything lucrative it was just purely to share stories and my brother and i would always just say if it, it you know this is something that we're doing so we can look back at in 20 years and laugh laugh at pretty much like that was it that was why we did it so and then youtube one day sent us a check to our mom's house for like i don't know 30 dollars 28 dollars or something yeah I'm like what the hell is this and it was like for ad <laughs> revenue because they were putting ads in our videos yeah 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 and uh, it just like kind of clicked a little bit. We're like, holy shit, if we can make th- I mean, that's like, that's a case of beer. Like, if you can make <laughs> that in a month, that's great. Yeah. Um, so we just kept going, kept going. And then the, the channel was growing. And then one of our followers reached out and was like, hey, there's this new thing, Patreon, that started. Uh-huh. Um, so, so, okay. So, what, look into what year? It. Let's pause for a second. What year did the
0: YouTube channel start? And then what year did Patreon start? Like, for you guys, uh, the, I mean,
1: the YouTube channel. We started posting in like 2011, end of 2011. So you're not um, only probably one of the largest
0: or the largest YouTube sailing channels, but you were probably one of the first YouTube sailing channels as well. Yeah.
1: I don't think, I mean, there was, there was, there's a guy, Rick Moore, that had been putting random small clips up on YouTube in 2010. But I think as far as like storyline base, we were the first YouTube sailing channel. Yeah. And then it just, yeah. And now there's, I don't know, 12,000 of them, I think something like yeah. that. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So the 2011 or so is when we started kind of releasing short videos on, and they, a lot of them were just pictures and music and stuff, just like montages. And then, uh, 2013, maybe till end of 12. So like a year and a half later is when somebody was like, Hey, there's this thing, Patreon you, you guys should look into. And that's when we started our Patreon account. And, um, and then that, yeah, that just kind of started growing. And we just kept kept getting newer, newer camera gear and better camera gear. And just at, at some point, we were able to um, pay for the, the mortgage of the boat, like in 2000, yeah, probably around 2013 or 14. And that was huge. That was, you know, 1500 or $2,000 a month. And that was just like, we still had to work and we still had to like go off and do things. that wasn't a full-time job making the videos, but it was just huge that it was cutting it out. And then we saw the scalability of it. And you could just see like, if you just keep doing what you're doing, eventually more people watch, become patrons, and you don't have to work harder. You just kind of have to keep doing what you're doing and be consistent about it. So once we started releasing videos every Friday, and our we got, I mean, once you do things for so long, like I'm sure you know, you, you get really good at it. So like our editing skills got a lot better, our videography skills got better, and we kept reinvesting into newer and better cameras. And just trying different things and following different storylines. And yeah, then it just kind of grew to a point where we were like, we can actually turn this into a little bit more than just a lifestyle business and and make a little bit of a career out of it.
0: Amazing. So breakdown for me, what were your, not roles and responsibilities, that makes it sound so boring, but I mean... What were the things that you were kind of doing? What were the things your brother was doing? What was the kind of things that his partner was doing? I mean, did you guys have a division here? Or did everybody do everything? Or was it really thought out at the beginning when you were making these videos and starting to grow?
1: Yeah, when we when we first started, I mean, everybody was doing everything. We were all filming. We were all editing. Um, my brother, I mean, because the boat is his name, he's the captain of the boat. Um, so, but, but it was never like... Um, captain and crew situation like the way we all handled it was like this was our boat it was our home so we all made decisions together we all voted on where we wanted to go what we wanted to do um a lot of the maintenance stuff we all split so it was definitely a a group effort in all aspects everybody did all the cooking like it was all a huge yes huge group aspect Mm -hmm.
0: and then all right so if you were with your sibling for so long did you guys get along the whole time? I'm trying to think of like what me and my brother would be like. I mean, I, I had him traveling with me for years and we did pretty good, but we also had like separate apartments or, I mean, at least separate bedrooms and things. But I think in a boat, I mean, that must get a little bit cramped and maybe Templars flat flare. I don't know.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a huge question. And we get that so often. It's just like, how can you live with your brother for so long? And, and aren't you guys, did you kill yourself along the way? Or how, how do you <laughs> not get in fights? And and I don't know, I think for, for my brother and I could, because we have a 10 year gap between us, we we were just far enough apart where, and we had a lot of the same interests. So we got along super well. Like, I mean, there's there's definitely disagreements and we get annoyed with each other. And at the end of the day, we do have very different personalities, but I think they complemented each other, especially with building the, the channel and the business and stuff. So, I don't know. Man. It, it's, we have a brother between us as well. So there's a middle brother and we're, we get along really well too. But I think it's just kind of, the, the more I think about it, our kind of low key personalities where it's just like communication and we don't want any drama and it just kind of yeah. works and out. And you guys
0: are mature enough to understand maybe it's not worthwhile to get that last word in or something like that.
1: Yeah, exactly. But,
0: but okay. So you just threw another wrench into it. Okay. You have a brother who is aged between the pair of you. How was yeah. he not like super jealous that you guys? Well, first of all, are spending so much time together, but second of all, I mean, sailing around the world like <laughs> he wasn't interested, yeah. or you guys just were like, ah, I'm not gonna invite him. He's not
1: cool enough. Like, you how know, did that he work? Had, At that point, when we when we left, I mean, he he had already had his first kid, and and he had his own business, and he's um I think he's just not as like super adventurous, wanting wanting to go travel. I'm sure he'd love to do it, but it's not like i have to go and see the world i have to go travel he's like i'm super happy here with my kid and my wife and and having the house and the car and all that all that stuff really does fulfill him okay so yeah he's just 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 a little bit different of a, of a brother than, than the cool. other two on the outsides are
0: has he been down to see you guys been on vacation and sailed with you a little bit or just really like no interest
1: yeah, no, he he came down and, and sailed with us from the Keys um, up to Fort Lauderdale when we finally made it back to America. Um, and he's been on the boat, you know, a handful of times since then and done little passages and stuff. And he loves it, definitely loves it for sure. But I just don't know if he has like that, that sailor's, I don't know what I what a, like the say, the rum running through the veins, you know? <laughs> <laughs> awesome.
0: Okay, so let let's go back here. So youtube pays you a 30 dollar check you're like this is sweet i mean there's something to this six months year later whatever it was uh patreon someone says okay get a patreon account you know i want to support you guys i want to help um you guys should look into this how did that scale did did it stay at 30 dollars for a while did it go to enough that like this was going to pay for things on its own or like Talk me through the financial side, I guess, of how how you monetized, how you made money, how you continued to do this. Because in our story, we're still back eight years ago or seven years ago. I mean, if that was staying at thirty dollars, I'm sure there's no way you would have been able to continue the journey.
1: Yeah, yeah, it grew, it grew very, very slow, um, but steady. Like there was that steady kind of slope that was that was growing, and it took from from the time we we did Patreon until the time like all the expenses were paid for the boat, including like food, fuel, maintenance, mortgage insurance, everything. Yeah that didn't that didn't make it to that point until I would say 2016, 2017. So you're talking 40 45 years of constant hard 15 hour days, lots of work filming, editing, Fixing the boat, moving from country to country, before it was able to cover the cost of the the boat, which was which would be maybe like you know five thousand a month, something like that. So it took it took a lot of time for it to get to that point. And then once it got to that point, we just kept pushing it and kept pushing it. And then and then it, of course it, it grew from there. And I, I mean even to this day, we're not we're not wealthy by any means, but we've been able to. Pay for pay for the production as well. Um, work on different productions, like I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about our Svalbard expedition and our documentary we were able to make, um, and then also be able to save a little bit of money too. So
0: cool. So I think this is an important point because I think that a lot of people out there would listen to this and go, "Wow, I just go out, take some pictures, and film my sailing, and you know that's going to fund it." I mean, but you guys put a lot of work into this, and not over a month, but I mean over years yeah to build this up to
1: something substantial definitely and we i mean i get messages every day that's like hey i want i just bought a boat i'm starting a youtube channel about sailing and traveling like what did you do how do you how do you suggest i, I make money? like i want to quit my job and how do you suggest i make money doing it i'm just like make money a different way and sail for fun <laughs> like that's you know it, it's hard advice but you the only reason we were successful is because we didn't see it as a way to to turn it into a job. We loved what we were doing and we were authentic about it. we're like, if this never makes money, it's awesome. Like we love it. We can look back in 20 years and look at these videos. We're traveling the world. If, If it pays for a fraction of our traveling cost, awesome. And I think that's why it was successful because a lot of people see the authenticity that you're not doing it just to make a product and make money and make clickbait nowadays and everything else that goes with creating YouTube videos It didn't matter back then. It was just like, we're going to film whatever the hell we want, edit it however we want. And if people watch, they watch. If not, who cares? Because it made us smile. And that's what led to the success. So I think the the advice that I give most people that ask me those questions is like, just do what you love and be authentic about it. That's the only way you're going to get anywhere in like the creative space of whether it's YouTube or podcast or writing a book or whatever it is. You just have to be yourself and that'll shine through and people will see that and, and grasp onto it and then it'll, it'll start to grow and hopefully make money. That makes sense. But I
0: think, I think that is really good advice because I think that a lot of people just see this romantic dream and they just think that, I mean, it's so easy. Just take some videos, put it up, and I mean, suddenly I'm going to have thousands of followers. First of all, yeah. I think that the space and everything, every niche out there in YouTube is massively crowded at the moment. Like I think yeah. whatever it is you want to do, so yeah. that's, and good that's, another, that's another
1: good point that you said too. I think it was timing too, because, you know, it, right now, if we were to go do the same thing, I don't even know if I would, I'd start a YouTube channel. Like, I don't know if I'd be into filming. It It was because nobody was doing it, that it felt super authentic. Like you were doing something special for the first time. So yeah, timing is everything when it comes to this stuff as well. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Okay. So you leave New Zealand and you went off to Fiji, you went to a couple more South Pacific islands You've got a little bit of money in your pocket. What did you do next? Did you go up to Asia? Did you turn around and go home? Where did you go? Yeah.
1: So then we went up after we went to Australia and we stayed in Australia. I mean, we were still this is this is two thousand twelve still, so before before we started being able to make any sort of money. Um so we were very broke like if we were broke when we got to new zealand when we got to australia we were like in debt broke <laughs> like oh, like borrowing money credit cards all kinds of stuff so we actually stayed in australia for a full year at that point because we just needed to to recoup the funds and, and my brother started doing some some coding work um working remote and i some random thing like i don't i love mexican food but somehow somebody found me and was like oh yeah you brady you you work in new zealand at the mexican restaurant i just opened up four of them like do you want to manage them for me i'm like "Ah." (laughs) okay i guess so so i mean i got a sweet job though. i I was managing four mexican places in in australia getting paid really well and and got all the free food i could get so that was that was huge (laughs) Yeah, we and did during that for okay, a year. so
0: during a year of Mexican managing Mexican restaurants, were you still YouTubing at that time, or did you like yeah. ah, take a break and then we'll pick it back up later?
1: Yeah, we we weren't YouTubing at all at that point. I mean, we we had we didn't even really we didn't really start. Like really filming and going after it until we left Australia that year. It was the end of 2011, I think. We had some, we had a few videos up on YouTube, but during that year, we didn't film our lives, we didn't edit, we didn't do anything until we do left. Do you regret again.
0: not filming that? Do you wish you had that kind of that
1: that year documented like you have the other ones? Yeah, I mean, not not necessarily working and living in Australia because that was just like we lived in a tiny apartment and just like worked nonstop. So so it's not like the, my favorite time in life. But the but the times going through like Vanuatu and Solomon's and like diving the Coolidge and stuff, like, you know, we just didn't have the gear back then. We didn't have big underwater housings with crazy cameras and we didn't have drones. And so if we would have been, been able to film that back then, it would have been some crazy episodes. But at the same time, we got to experience it in a way that we probably wouldn't have otherwise if we had tons of cameras. We were still doing it just for our, our own eyes, not necessarily to try and capture everything. So... It all worked out as it should, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I totally understand that because people are like, yeah, I want to see your travel photos. I'm like, uh, I got them on a hard drive piled away somewhere. I mean, I didn't really take a lot of photos. I just kind of saw a lot of stuff. And then, I mean, it's mine. Like, it's it's in my head. It's in my heart. I mean, I've been traveling for 20 years straight. And, like, I did not document it. It just wasn't my thing. I think I tried a couple of times. I bought, like, big SLR cameras And then I just end up sitting around and not using it. I think if I had have had a YouTube channel, someone to show it to, I probably would have done the extra effort. But, um, yeah, I know I get that. That's cool.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and then, I mean, after after that and after we left Australia that second time, it became a real passion for us. It became, like, after that year of working, we were like, fuck that. We don't want to do that anymore. Like, if we can make (laughs) even a little bit of money doing this video thing, like, let's... Make that. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, <laughs> so that's a good lesson work. figuring out once again what you don't want to do. Yeah. Like, I don't want to work for somebody else. I don't want to work in hospitality. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. And then we, after Australia that time, we went up into Indonesia, uh, did tons of diving in Raja Ampat, and then up into the Philippines. Um, and then we were in the Philippines for, we were supposed to be there for, I think, three or four weeks, maybe. And we were there for eight months. We just fell in love with the Philippines, cruised around there at this point i had a partner on board as well so it was me and my girlfriend and my brother and his girlfriend and then we'd have like one or two random people coming and going as we were traveling yeah um and the girls and... get along there was no um
0: like change in <laughs> dynamic or make it more difficult with a fourth person on
1: no man it was a it was pretty good i mean we all it's it's a very low stress environment you know like if you if you get sick of somebody or get annoyed like we all understood you know you just put some headphones on and and go take the paddleboard and go to the beach and go for a long hike or go swimming. And I think in order to live on a boat full-time and a lot of people ask like, oh man, if I don't have any sailing experience, how can I become your crew? And it's like, sailing experience is at the bottom of the list. Like the most, the the most important thing is can you live with other people in, in close quarters and like feel people's energies and be able to understand if somebody's upset or not upset? And can you communicate and take criticisms without, really being upset. Like those, those are the top of the list. The sailing stuff, we can teach you that. Like that's 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 no problem. It's more just, will you have a mental breakdown living in a small space with so many people?
0: Well, that makes sense because I've met some people that, I swear to God, drama just follows them everywhere they go. Like it doesn't matter what the situation is, what's happening. There is going to be something that's dramatic about it that's going to cause problems that you're going to have to have a big talk. And I think that would that, that would just be like toxic on a boat. Like you just couldn't have something like
1: that. Yeah. I always refer to, we always refer to it and whatever, anybody we talk to is a boat's like a pressure cooker. So if you have good and everybody loves each other and there's a lot of good energy, it's just going to grow and be incredible. And everyone's going to be like the best friends and family. But if you have a little bit of drama or a little bit of negativity, it's going to pressure up and it's going to turn into a big situation, a big problem. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: That makes sense. Perfectly. So, I mean, if we continue down this path of everywhere you went in the world, I don't think we're going to have time to talk about some of the more modern stuff. So, okay. So let's fast forward a couple of years because although I do want to hear all these stories and I I reckon me and you need to go and drink a bottle of tequila or something and shoot the shit and go through everything. But okay, for, for my for brevity's sake and for my audience's sake, let's, let's fast forward a little bit. You've done some, like if that stuff wasn't wild enough, the stuff you've done in the last couple of years is like really wild. Like I was watching some of your clips and your videos from sailing in the Arctic. Can you talk to me about that? Like, first of all, I guess, like what was the genesis of this idea? Because that is not the, the typical type of sailing I think people would expect.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, after so just to kind of speed up the timeline a bit, we left Asia, um, we crossed the Indian Ocean, uh, we ended up in Madagascar, and then South Africa. And we were in South Africa, um, about to cross to Brazil. And um, this is, you know, years down the road, and, and me and my partner had broken up and, and I had met a new partner, um, Alex, who's still my my girlfriend now. And she was on board as kind of a video videographer, videographer, editor. Brought an incredible wealth of knowledge of, of cameras and kind of post production and really upped our editing game like a lot that that year in Cape Town, um, and we were crossing to Brazil and we got an email. Uh, we got service when we got to Brazil and we got an email from some friends of ours in the sailing community that own a company called Fifty Nine North and they do offshore. Believe it or not, I've
0: actually heard of them. I swear yeah. to God, I've actually heard of that. That's crazy. Yeah
1: okay sorry a full no worries they do like a full sailing podcast called on the wind and they just take people offshore for offshore experiences and people that want to learn how to sail offshore or it's a bucket list item they'll be like we're sailing from the caribbean to um annapolis and they, you know it's an eight-day trip and people pay to come along and join them so they they do a lot of um, stuff up in northern norway as well and 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 up high latitude stuff so they made trips to do some expeditions in in the arctic and they wrote us and they're like listen we don't have there's three weeks of our timeline that we don't have booked and we want you guys if you want we want to invite you know the delos crew to come up and film it and like share the experience from your perspective behind the cameras instead of just having like normal guests come aboard and I mean, we didn't even know where it was. He was like Svalbard and we're like, where the fuck is that? Yes, we're in, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> go to the Arctic, polar bears, glaciers, all this stuff. We, I mean, we've been, by this point, we've been sailing around for nine years and basically living in our underwear in constant tropics, right? Which is, it's great. It's incredible, but it's the same thing that people, oh, the grass is always greener and you kind of get a little bit jaded with there's sand on everything. It's hot. Like, you know, all the stuff that you're like, stop, stop complaining. But after a while, you know, yeah. yeah. so uh, we were just like, hell yeah, like the Arctic, we we needed something to to re-ignite like our passion for filmmaking and and that was it. So we we planned for a year for this trip um, after we said yes. I mean, we had to buy all the foul weather gear. We had to like do tons of research, get permits. We had to get permits for rifles because up in Svalbard, the polar bear population is bigger than the human population, and in the summertime they get very hungry, so they can they've been known to attack humans. So if you leave the the little village limits, the town limits, you have to carry a rifle with you to scare polar bears away. Like you just shoot in the air, and uh, hopefully it scares them away. So yeah, all this stuff led up to uh, a three-week trip to the Arctic that we we ended up doing. And this was uh, August of 2018 is when we did that trip. Okay, so the boat stayed where you were and you flew up and used their boat,
0: is that correct? Yeah, exactly.
1: Okay. We, left, we left Delos in the Caribbean in Grenada. We hopped on a flight and flew to uh, there. Andy and Mia are the are the owners we're talking about, and they uh, live on a boat called Eastbjorn, which is Swedish for ice bear, actually.
0: Cool. So I imagine that that would be a special type of boat that would be fitted to deal with arctic
1: climate and ice
0: and stuff am i correct you know,
1: in that you think so and i thought so before we went too but no i mean it was no it's, really it was, eh? it was, it was it's like an old older uh, offshore racing boat okay. um Cruiser like cruiser racer so it's definitely a aboard boat but there's tons of bunks for a lot of people to sleep uh-huh. um, but it's not like a big steel hole or aluminum hole it's still fiberglass still um wow. I mean, they added a heater on board, which definitely was necessary, but it's not what you'd see. It's not what you'd expect to be a full on like high Arctic crazy boat. It's, it's just like a normal sailboat. Amazing.
0: And then did you guys do any diving up there? Did you do any dry suit diving or anything?
1: We didn't do any diving. Uh, There was a guy, James, that was with us. That's an amazing uh, photographer that we brought along and he got in the water plenty with his dry suit and just like swimming around and taking photos. We didn't do anything under under the surface.
0: Mm -hmm. And no uh, Wim Hof jumping into cold water type of thing.
1: We did. We did that. It was terrible. Did you really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We got into the water right in front of a glacier at 80 degrees north. And that's the name of the series is 80 degrees cool. north sailing on top of the world. And, and yeah, jumping in the water up at that, up at that latitude is I mean, it feels like. Can you even describe
0: certainty. something like, like what would, like, I've been in cold, I'm from southwestern Ontario. I've been in cold water, but I've never been in
1: anything like that. I'm very sure. Yeah, you go. You have to go watch the documentary. Our reaction to saying us—it's <laughs> like <laughs> it's just you know pins and needles. Your body goes numb. It's, it's intense, man. It's it's it takes your breath away. And I could see how people can have a quick panic attack and then maybe have hypothermia pretty fast. So. You just have to. Andy loves it. The guy, the captain of the boat, he was in the water on his back, like just breathe, relax. And we're like, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> but it was a great experience jumping in the water there, and you kind of have to do it. It's kind of a rite of passage when you're up at that, that altitude. For sure, for like sure. You're saying altitude at that altitude.
0: So, okay. So talk to me a little bit, a bit more about where the location was. Cause I lived in the Arctic for 366 days. I was in the Baffin islands in Iqaluit right next to Greenland. So like I went to Greenland, I went to Nook and stuff, but were you more in the Scandinavian side? Did you stay over there or did you sail
1: a lot in the area? Uh, We just stayed in the group of the archipelago um, of Svalbard. So it's like, it's, if you go up to the North, west tip of norway and then you go just northwest of there yeah it's hard to see the map but it's it's just it's 600 miles from the north pole and it's just a small island so we just stayed around that island or that group of islands for for three weeks straight so again it's kind of yeah north northeast of of greenland and iceland a little bit higher up into the arctic circle
0: beautiful So then talk to me about the documentary. So you guys decided you were going up there specifically to film what it is like for sailing there. Um, Talk to us a little bit about the documentary and then the monetization of it, because I think this kind of circles back to our conversation earlier about how you funded your trips. And this is a really interesting way you've done it. Um, I'm not going to spoil the surprise, but I mean, I've never seen anyone do this type of monetization.
1: Yeah, so when we we first said yes to this trip, we knew we wanted to do something different because in the YouTube world, you can only push yourself so much as, as videographers and editors and filmmakers, because there's always that Friday deadline. If you're putting a video out once a week, like you have to release it. Whereas this, we were like, you know what, we're going to go up there and we're going to film it in, in a very cinematic way. We're going to do like sit down interviews. We're going to really take the extra time. And then we're going to choose whether we want to put it on YouTube as our normal series of episodes or do something bigger with it later depending on how the footage came out. So after the three weeks of filming, my girlfriend and I sat down and we looked at the footage and we were like, oh yeah, this, this is definitely way bigger than than our than just the normal Friday release YouTube channel. So we decided to really take the extra effort and start editing it into a, we wanted to do like a three part series, each part like 45 minutes long, something like that. Um, and of course, at the same time, we were, we were back on Delos and we were still running YouTube channel and traveling and sailing. So it got put on the back burner a lot. So it wasn't full-time editing, but it took us about two years to complete the project. Holy moly.
0: And did you two guys years. do all
1: the editing between
0: like amongst yourselves or did you need to bring yeah. in professional help for it?
1: No, we did it all. Me, me and uh, my girlfriend did most of the, the editing and there's another guy, Kirill, uh, he, he's a South African guy that sailed with us. He does tons of editing as well for us. Um, and he, he did a huge chunk of it. Alex, my girlfriend did a huge chunk of it and I did a huge chunk of it all the way from editing to color grading, uh, to finding the the person to do the narration, audio engineering, everything we did all in house.
0: Cool. Well, I mean, it took
1: two years. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I get that.
0: I get that. So, I mean, like I said, I was on the page and, and, Actually, straight off the bat, what is the page if people want to learn more about this, if they want to uh, find out and maybe check out your work? What is that page right now?
1: 80northseries.com.
0: 80northseries.com. I went on that and I watched the trailer and I was like, wow, this looks like, you know, BBC Planet Earth, you know, style of David Attenbury type of documentary. And I'm like, that's this is not what I was expecting. I I have to be honest. I mean, I was thinking YouTube, I had seen you guys YouTube channel probably like six months or a year ago. And then when, um, we got introduced, I was like, yeah, I know their work. And it was like, I knew, I knew a little bit about sailing, not very much, but I mean a little bit. And I was kind of thinking, oh, they did a documentary. I was expecting that, but with snow, you know? Right. And then I saw the trailer and I was like, holy moly like this is another it's level huh? yeah
1: it's,
0: <laughs> it's very different in a good way in an absolutely good way I, i'm I'm trying to be very complimentary here i'm not sure if that's Thank coming you, through no, but... i
1: really appreciate it it means a lot it means a lot yeah i mean like like people in the sailing industry <clears> have <throat> described it as being like youtube meets jacques Cousteau meets discovery channel like something yeah. like that like it st- <laughs> still has like our personality and our vlogging kind of style but it also has a very cinematic and well thought out shots and interviews and, and incredible footage. So, and, and the, the reason we we wanted to do that is we wanted to really separate something from Delos as well, Where where if you'd never heard of Delos or never heard of sailing around the world, whatever, you could still watch this mini series and understand who we were and what was going on. That was a huge part of it is that it would, it could appeal to everybody. So once we started finishing it, then we, we were, looking to what to do with this, right? You're like, okay, well, the traditional routes of Netflix or Hulu or Amazon prime or discovery channel, all these things. Um, and when we started going down that route and I started talking to all the executives and the people that take on these new projects, a lot of the feedback was basically like, where's the drama? Like, you know, we need to change this music here, or this is too long, or that's not going to fit. It was just a lot of like, change a bunch of things and they never really uh, gave us a formal offer. But from what I talked to with friends that have got documentaries bought by them, it wouldn't have been, I mean, maybe, maybe would have covered our production budget. Like it wouldn't, you know, it was so low that it was just like, yeah, we just sat back and we're like, okay, well, what do we, what do we do? How do we release this in a different way? So you had a
0: finished product completely done. You showed it to them and this was kind of the response.
1: Yep. Yeah. They're, they're like, you know, it needs a little bit higher risks. And I'm like, we're sailing in the Arctic and we have to have rifles because of polar bears and there's like <laughs> glaciers crashing and trying to like crash the boat with ice is going to crash the boat and stuff. And, um, but it's, it's, the But same there was no thing fights with, on board. You guys
0: all got along. Yeah, that's, it's kind that's of exactly like what we were talking about before about <sighs> the pressure cooker and maybe in, they want that type of drama because they think that that's what sells, but actually that's the worst thing that could happen. I mean, you don't want
1: that kind of stuff so yeah i was like yeah some of the guys i was like oh you mean like you like the the stakes that are in your baking show that's on netflix right now <laughs> like you know <laughs> just like oh are the stakes of that but they just want exactly they want people to argue they want they wanted they wanted the crew to not get along as well as we did and i'm like well i don't have that footage because it didn't happen like we got along really well this is 100 percent truth of what happened so we were like, you know what? We're just gonna release it ourselves. We're just gonna, and, and this idea of doing it, we released it in the pay what's fair model um, was, was just kind of Radiohead back in the day, released an album. Remember the days of like Napster and LimeWire and Kazaa, and everybody was pirating music. So Radiohead came out and was like, you know what? Everybody's gonna download our shit for free. Why don't we just have everybody download it from our website and just ask them to pay what they think is fair after listening to the album.
0: That was uh, Hail to the Thief, I think they did that for. I actually think it was. I I sat and talked with Tom York and his wife and his two kids in first class on a flight one day. Oh, cool. I was like, this was unbelievable. They were like super, super cool. They were going to the Maldives on vacation. Sorry, side note there, that just memory just popped in my mind.
1: Yeah, No, it's um, cool. I mean, th- that concept was huge. It, it, it was one of the most successful albums ever because of that. Because people, when they were given the choice to pay, whatever they wanted, often paid more than what they would have thought would be fair if, they, if it was a set price.
0: And so did you find that that was the same? Did you get that same type of result as the model did in the past?
1: Well, because we've never charged anybody for anything. So we don't know. It was fully and Like nobody's ever done this in the sailing world. And uh, there's uh, another YouTube channel called Yes Theory, where the guys did it for one of their documentaries. Um, they did a pay what's fair thing. And they, they said it turned out incredibly well. So we're like what do we have to lose you know we just we just need to put it in front of people and and show them the trailer show them how much work we put into it and then have them pay what they think is fair and yeah i mean it's it's been a it's been a wild ride that's for sure like a lot less people have paid than i thought but they're paying more on average
0: okay can you break down those numbers for us or is that kind of yeah we've
1: we've no for sure so uh, i can tell you that the production budget which normally on a documentary like this from friends of ours and researching what other documentaries costs would be around 150 to $200,000. Like that's like a normal production budget. Ours was right around 80,000.
0: Cool. Something wow. like
1: that. Probably and, because um, you did a
0: lot of the work yourself. Did everything in your ourselves. House. So a lot of yeah. that,
1: a lot of that work and time was like our time, my time that I didn't write down hourly for that. Somebody else, if we would outsource it would have charged us $80 an hour to do. So that's why the price is, is quite low. Um, and then so far about 10,000 people have watched and the average cost is about 15 or the average price people pay is about fifteen dollars so so it's about 150 grand. But in, in the scheme of things, when you when you talk about the money invested and two years of work and four people and you know it's it, it works out to like maybe making ten thousand dollars a year. So it's not like, it's it's not like a um, uh, lucrative thing by any means. Didn't make us rich, but it, at least we were able to make our our investment back, which is huge, and prove that it worked. And it's still it's still out there. So like, well, that was going to be still my watching point.
0: it exactly. And I I encourage my listeners to go out there and check it out. I mean, absolutely, you guys, shouldn't. I think that I'm going to go and do that tonight. I mean, if I've got free time tonight, I think this is what I'm going to do. Probably should have done it before the interview, but that's all right.
1: Never that's mind. all right. No, 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 it's better. <laughs> it's great. And yeah, so it's a four-part series. Each part is about 30 minutes long. Um, so you can binge it if you want, do the full two hours, or you can watch one at a time. And, and yeah, you go to 80 series.com watch the trailer, type in what you think is fair to pay for it um, for, for, yeah, four-part series, two years of crazy hard work, and then enjoy. And it's, it's just available.
0: Sweet. Well, I would imagine that because you have such a big following on YouTube, and I do believe in reciprocity, I think that people are going to be appreciative of all the hard work you guys have done over the last 10 years of sailing and documenting and trying to help people that like, I think with a lot of your videos, people are really learning something. This is like an a university course, a master class in how to sail and how to do these things and how to live overseas on a boat. I mean, I think that you would get a lot of reciprocity. A lot of people would want to support you and, and really give back. They're not gonna try to nickel and dime you. That would be my expectation. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, you're, you're 100% right. I mean, our, our kind of audience and the Delos tribe, what we call them is just, yeah, super incredible like that when it comes to that sort of thing. They understand how much work is involved in, in what we've done over the years and and that the all the YouTube is obviously for free and it continues. It'll be for, for free forever. And then the amount of work that goes into the series, 99.9% of the people are like, yes, we love it. We're so stoked. We're happy to contribute. There's that 0.1% that's like, you guys sold out. I can't believe you're charging us for stuff. Like, unfollow. You're like, I, okay, Bye. I don't care, man. <laughs> I don't really care. Like, I hope you're okay. <laughs> um, but overall, it's been, yeah, received really well. And, and um, yeah, tons of magazine articles. And it's just, in the, in the wholesaling community, it's been really received amazing
0: awesome so what's uh, what's next on the horizon more documentaries more pay-as-you-go documentaries I mean you're not talking to me from the boat right now so what's right. happening there I mean talk to me about the yeah. changes
1: yeah so um, Alex and I my girlfriend and I we left Delos about a year ago and we um, we live in Lake Tahoe now in California we came here for the season because like that whole being jaded, thing living on the boat. I was like, I need a freaking break from living on this boat and filming my everyday life. So we came up to the mountains to snowboard, uh, and then COVID hit. So it's like, well, <laughs> might as well just stick around for a little bit. And in that time, we've kind of yeah put some roots down. We started a sailing school here, so we're, we're not we're not full time on Dallas anymore. But my brother, his wife, and their daughter are on board, and they're still making. It's like a family sailing channel now, which is really cool. They're still making week- weekly episodes. They're putting them out about raising a, a, a little girl in the boat. And um, Alex and I, yeah, we started our sailing school in Lake Tahoe, where anybody around the world can come and learn the basics of sailing all the way up to crossing oceans, like offshore passages, really intense sailing. And yeah, we're still making films. Just yesterday, Alex and I were out filming Dog Mushing, and we're going to make a short film on like the history of dog sledding and and um, how cool it is just to be out in, in the forest with dogs and, yeah, just making films out of a passion now instead of a necessity every Friday to to make money, I guess. We're trying to start the sailing school to have a financial game and then, you know, do the passion stuff for a passion again.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That makes sense. So do you think that you will do a, another around-the-world trip, maybe on a boat with just you and the girlfriend, or do you 100%. think that maybe that... <laughs> part of your life is finished
1: hundred percent just the other day we were looking at a boat uh, down in Sausalito it's a 42 foot 1980 passport and it's an ocean going crossing boat that's that's definitely going to be part of our our fleet and we're going to use that to sail down to Mexico across the Pacific and also to bring people on board to teach them how to provision how to check weather how to how to properly live on a boat and sail the world if they want to do it
0: sounds amazing Brady (laughs) Awesome conversation. Super, super interesting. I'm really stoked for you. Man, you've done some awesome stuff. Um, If my listeners want to find out more about what you do, if they want to check out the channel, if they want to check out the documentary, please give them that link. Uh, Where can my people find you? Where can they reach out to you?
1: Yeah, if you just search SV Delos on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, that's kind of, you'll find over 400 episodes of us sailing and traveling the world there. That's gone from me being a 20 year old to all the way up to like 33. So like, you can see me growing up through the episodes. Um, and of course my brother is, now has a baby on board. So it's a really cool channel to follow from the beginning. Um, for us specifically for the sailing school, you can check out Cruisers Academy on um, both on YouTube. We have a YouTube channel and on Instagram. And cruisesacademy.com. And then, of course, the documentary is 80northseries.com. And you should go watch that right now.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much. And we'll talk soon. OK, Brady? Thanks, Ed. Thank you so much for listening to today's interview. Talk soon. Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investor's Workshop, Capitalizing on the Globally Recognized Resort Brand Coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front-runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region.